Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is David McCarthy. Uh, he's a, a wonderful guest. I've known Dave for, for a, a long time and He's a really thoughtful and, and eloquent and brilliant guest. And he's, he's had so many kind of, he's worn so many hats, so to speak, in, in video games. Uh, he was a writer for Edge for many years and a bunch of other magazines as well. And uh, he spent a few years working at Rockstar. And uh, now he, he lives and works in Japan. And he's worked for a number of uh, Japanese video game companies. And he has all kinds of brilliant stories and insights from all those various roles it was a really fun chat like i always enjoyed chatting with dave uh, i think i think people will really enjoy it. speaking of uh, people really enjoying things uh, the episode last week i would say even number five uh, was was very popular i was i was not that i was surprised because it came out very well but i was i was really pleased with um, how many people seem to really enjoy that episode and and gravitate towards it so thanks everyone for listening and thanks to all the guests for taking part and uh, i spoke to everybody now and hopefully this will become a, an annualized uh, show so next year um we will we'll do an update and see where everybody is so that's that's quite exciting um if you oh, also one more thing about that which nobody pointed out um which to be fair is my entirely my fault it was actually auto save episode six uh, not auto save episode five there was already an auto save episode five it was uh, games are for everyone show uh, but I didn't notice that. Nobody else noticed that. So I've decided since it's kind of already recorded and I've done all the blog posts and Twitter updates and stuff, um, it's just going to be auto save five. We're going to have two auto save fives and just go straight on into number seven, which I'm currently in the the planning stages of. Um, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can. You can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpoint show on twitter or it's checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding please do like and follow the show and tell your friends and stuff tweet about it uh, rate and review on itunes just anything you can that kind of encourages more people to listen to or int- introduces it to new people is always uh, incredibly appreciated um and and really helps grow the the audience if you really like the show there's a patreon as well patreon.com forward slash checkpoints if you have the money and the inclination all the all donations very gratefully received and go towards making the show as good as possible particularly when it comes to the autosave episodes because they are uh, very much a labor of love and can take uh, an awful lot of time um and you know with a bit more money i can hopefully do grander broader episodes like that if if if, if people are interested obviously Anyway, I will be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. I have uh, I have some real corkers uh, recorded uh, due to come up in the next couple of weeks. I'm very excited to share them with you, including today's. It's, it's brilliant. So I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. Until then, let's get on with the show. Let's do a, a, a formal introduction so I can we can chat more and I can not have to edit things. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Dave, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. If you if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, I'm David McCarthy. Um, ha, what else should I add? 
you want to hear? I don't know. Just what, what, yeah, yeah. what you've done. I guess, um, well, so I've been working in the games industry for, I guess, nearly kind of 20 years now. Like I, um, after university, I stumbled into investment banking. And while I was there, uh, I saw a job advert for Edge magazine, which I had always uh, kind of loved when I was uh, at university, like really revered the magazine. And by a weird quirk of uh, fate, I got a job there. And from there, I, that kind of launched um, what I guess I, you know, could charitably call a career in the games industry, um, working as a games journalist for Edge and for various other kind of sites as a freelancer, uh, working at Rockstar Games where I met my uh, lovely wife who is Japanese. And so when we got married, I uh, moved to Japan to try and learn some Japanese. Uh, and since I've been living in Japan, which I guess for about six or seven years now, I've been working for a lot of uh, games companies over here, which these days basically means kind of mobile games companies because, uh, you know, the yeah. console, console era is really kind of, uh, or I wouldn't say done, but, you know, like uh, console games have really kind of diminished in, in scope in Japan since I've been over here. I can't believe it's only been six or seven years. I feel like it's been longer than that. But It's frightening, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. Um, was that in your mind, though? Like, cause I, I was, wasn't sure about that at the time. Like, was it when you moved to Japan, was the idea that I'll get some sort of job in games basically no it wasn't actually i think like uh because i used to have a blog with simon byron and steve curran called the trifle yeah and we um like i remember kind of posting on there like oh farewell games industry uh you know it was nice um but like when i was in japan like um i was kind of open to, to various um offers in fact like i did get uh i was talking to somebody about going back into investment banking at one point but I mean, obviously, it was just easiest for me to um, to get a job in games. Like in particular, like there was a company called Gree, which at that time was um, a complete kind of behemoth in Japan. Like it was dominant in the space of mobile gaming. This was just on the cusp of the kind of smartphone era, and they yeah. were basically looking for somebody who had the kind of experience that I had uh, in Europe. Um, so it kind of made it the decision quite easy. So I joined them then, basically. And what did they make? Well, so at the time, like they were a social, like they were basically like Japan's equivalent of Facebook, but devote, like kind of more devoted to gaming. And so at that time in Japan, like feature phone games were a huge deal uh, in a way that they were never a huge deal in the West. And so everybody, you know, on the train would be playing on these kind of simple, you know, old school phones that would be playing these kind of one button games like which i guess were made out of some sort of like variant of html and yeah. um yeah so like i guess like their first kind of big hit was a was a game called Sudi star which was a really simple fishing game but i guess where it really kind of took off was uh, was when they teamed up with with konami to make a game called dragon collection and that kind of created this genre called card battle and uh after that, there was just a huge kind of wave of card battle games in Japan, uh, and everybody kind of rushed into that space. So all of the big, like, Japanese publishers, you know, Capcom, uh, Konami, uh, you know, everybody kind of turned their big kind of tentpole franchises into card battle games for feature phones. And then as the kind of smartphone era dawned, they basically ported them all over to smartphones. 
but gradually obviously users start you know or like kind of players sorry that's a terrible term isn't it users like um although it's kind of accurate because like you know the thing that characterized those games was that there were some really super heavy users who would spend a ton of money on this stuff um you know trying to get like the right kind of characters out of the lucky dips and stuff but yes yeah, so, yeah that would like early kind of free to play stuff basically. yeah exactly and then as the smartphone era dawned um you know all of those kind of companies there was a real reckoning like they all had to kind of adapt to uh to make new kinds of games that you know because of the smartphone functionality people were expecting better you know better quality game so i don't actually know what you do dave so no, i don't know well i don't since you've been in japan like what what was your role in these companies well so i agree i guess i was in kind of business development talking to european developers but most lately i've been working on like uh the western focused western facing marketing for uh these kind of smartphone free-to-play games developed in japan um that they're hoping to export into the west so in my last job i was working on a kind of soccer management game which for various reasons didn't work out very well like it was delayed a lot and so um i never really did much there apart from make a lot of marketing plans and now i'm working on uh, on a kind of card like collectible card game um, and doing just about to start uh, working on it, um, mark, doing the marketing in the West. And so, what what is that? Because you just you said about that, but it was before we kind of officially started recording. So this is yeah, it's, um, a guy that you knew years ago, right? Yeah. So it's a guy. Well, so I, yeah, a friend of mine in the games industry kind of persuaded me to join the company. Um, he, you know, kept asking me to play the game that he was working on, and I didn't very rudely didn't uh, for about six months. And then when I played it, I was really blown away because. It's a, a like a collectible card game. It looks yeah. kind of what well, like the visual style is very Japanese. It's very anime. Like there's you know like kind of uh, a small child who um, small girl who is also a necromancer and like kind of crazy vampire dude. But like um, the classics. Yeah, exactly. So uh, sorry, it's a game called Shadowverse. Can't remember if I said the name, but yeah, it's um like the game. The kind of core game, I guess, resembles a lit like Hearthstone a little bit. But the game was developed by these pro Magic the Gathering players, which is kind of interesting because, um, like, if you look up, you know, you know, if you kind of check out documentaries about Magic, like, these guys are featured in a lot of them. And so, like, a lot of the mechanics in the game are kind of reminiscent to me of Magic. And I, I really, really dearly loved Magic the Gathering. And also there was a game called... Uh, it was originally called Jihad, actually, but then they renamed it to a game uh, to call it Vampire, The Eternal Struggle, which is based on a pen and paper role playing game. But those games were... Jihad is a bit of a poor, poor choice. Yeah, although I guess at political world. In, in the nine, late 90s, it might not have been such a hot topic. But yeah, so, okay. so this game, Shadowverse, borrows kind of a lot of mechanics from those games. And so it really kind of transforms you know, like what would otherwise be quite a simple Hearthstone clone into something that's really, really, like, in my opinion, really sophisticated. And it's got like a load of kind of combos, which I love in any kind of game. I love tactical combos. Um, so, yeah, like, I really love the game and I'm really hoping that I'll be able to persuade people in the West to start playing it because it's a really fascinating game. I don't have to check it out because I do, like, Hearthstone is one of the few games that I've probably played almost well, every day for like two or three years interesting did, um, did you ever play magic the gathering never played magic the gathering Hearthstone is the very first card game i've ever played interesting. Um, but it's just like there's just something i mean it's the classic kind of blizzard thing of they they make it so easy to play and so inviting and everything is so satisfying the physicality of it and the 
the the the this audio design as well of all the different characters it's, so, it's just it, it's really relaxing to play and i watch it that's one of the few games as well that i i will watch like tournaments and stuff that's and to me it's actually christian Don, donlan wrote a brilliant article for Eurogamer about it about how the similarity between watching people play hearthstone and and people play snooker because a lot of the time the players are playing themselves in in the same way it's not as much of a competition it's more about analyzing the choices that they make yeah, I mean, that that's kind of almost what I mean about combos as well. Like, one of the fascinating things about snooker is the kind of way that, you know, top players play for position and, you know, try and set off a chain reaction that will yeah. root down the line. And, like, that's what, like, is exquisite about Hearthstone, but even more so about Shadowverse, in my personal opinion, is the way that, you know, first of all, like, you build these decks so that you build those combos in. You know, you're trying to, you know, get, you know, set up a deck so that the right card comes out at the right time and everything is geared towards, you know, doing that. And so, it, you know, it reminds me of Poyo Poyo as well. Like when well, we used to get madly into Poyo Poyo when I was at university and, you know, the way that you try and build, build these foundations for like quite far reaching kind of combos that, that unlock kind of massive scores is really interesting to me. I think that's really fascinating. But yeah, like, oh, well, I will, uh, I'll check it out. Is it, is it eight? Like, can I, can I play yeah, it today? Get it. Like it's on, it's on mobile and it's on um, steam as well. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's also like quite a big esport over here. Like, uh, weirdly like esports haven't historically been very big in Japan in that, in that sense of like, you know, big kind of spectator online games. But, um, we've been running a tour. Why not? Do you think? Sorry? Why not? Do you think? Uh, I think like basically like, uh, Japanese gaming came from a console background, whereas everywhere that esports is big has, you know, kind of quite a big PC gaming scene. And okay, interesting. You know, like from in Japan, like they never really had that. Like they had consoles and they had phones, and so it's only really now that um, that you know the smartphones have enabled that kind of uh, you know spectating uh, kind of angle. But yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You should check it out for sure. I will. Well, Dave, let's let's uh, meander back then um, and start properly, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> with uh, the question I ask everybody, which is, um, what was your very first experience of a video game? That is an interesting question, actually. I was thinking about this just before we came on. Like, um, I don't know what my first game would have been, but like my first memory is kind of playing Gauntlet round at friends' houses. My my parents were quite strict, so they never really allowed me uh a co- like video games of my own um so okay. you know i used to when i was at primary school i used to get like programming books and read about playing games but was never really allowed to play them so i used to have to play them around at other people's houses so yeah i remember like playing gauntlet on some amstrad thing like where the kind of screen was really green and stuff i used to play that was one of my very earliest gaming memories is playing my mum had some sort of amstrad computer in her work and it was like a green screen thing, and that that was probably my favorite thing for about yeah. a year. And it was awful, it was like demonstrably awful. Even at the time, I knew it was awful, but it was the only thing I had. Therefore, it was the best. Yeah, yeah, I've got some fond memories of those green screens for sure. <laughs> but were you like? Um, I mean, clearly you were like aware of like the wider scene, like. Was was there not a, even a computer at school you could kind of mess about on? So at school, like I remember, I remember used to buy video, like computer game magazines, secondhand off other people, and just look at the graphics and be like, oh wow, wouldn't it be? I remember like 
there was a spread about a Lord of the Rings game and I was like, my mind was completely blown that you could control entire armies. And I was like longing for the day that I might actually get to play one of these things seriously. But I think probably I was more into like pen and paper stuff before I got into um, to console games. Like the first console that I owned was a, was a Mega Drive, which I got on my 16th birthday. And that's when I like kind of seriously got into playing games at home and stuff. So before that, was it all just like pen and paper stuff? Pen and paper stuff and, and you know, video games around at friends' houses, I guess. So was there like, I don't know, like, a, where, whereabouts is this? Whereabouts in, in the country? Essex. Essex. Yeah. So was was there like, I don't know, like, like for me growing up, I mean, you're only a couple of years older than me, I think, but they were very much like video game gangs, not gangs, because that, 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 lends it a certain amount of masculinity that wasn't there but but you know, small groups of sheltered kids yeah yeah we band together tribes, over games. absolutely but like i never knew for some reason pen and paper games they were always something that we all wanted to play but never had the patience and it seemed like something that older boys did kind of <laughs> and that's kind of continued through my whole life it's just something that people older than me do i've never really kind of sat down and got into it so how did how did you kind of I don't know, get, get organized enough to do that, I suppose. I mean, the logistics of board gaming are quite uh, quite nightmarish, aren't they? Like, in fact, I've recently got back into board games, or I should say, like, buying board games, because, as you say, like, playing them is a total nightmare. Like, I've just got Star Wars Rebellion, which is, you know, when you unpack it, it's about the size of a house and, you know, has about a 1,000 <laughs> pieces and takes about seven hours to play. So trying to persuade my wife, you know, the only person who, you know, I have seven hours to spare with, to play that is is you know an on-starter but um but yeah like but the figurines are amazing they are it's great having all those things around yeah but um (laughs) but yeah like i guess um you know i guess that's why like uh, i ended up getting into video games as well like so you know that console really unlocked like a whole host of gaming memories for me like we spent i really remember like before every major exam like i would just have spent you know the preceding month or two just solidly completing games and then you know waking up in a blind panic on the morning of exams being like what have i done with the last four months oh no and stuff yeah it was so you your parents were right all along then you shouldn't you shouldn't have had a console yeah although i mean like they were i mean they were stupid enough to like throughout when i was growing up that i knew a lot of kids who would get rewarded by their parents for getting good exam results and yeah i never got that so just before my finals um at university i remember saying to arguing to my mum and dad that you know they should finally, you know, get me something just for having slogged through three years of university. And rather foolishly, like three weeks before my finals, they gave me the money for a Nintendo 64, which I then obviously went out and bought as soon as the money hit my account. <laughs> and yeah, had completed quite a few games by the time my, my finals came around. So how did you convince convince them to get the Mega Drive or did you just get that yourself? They got me that for my birthday. So um yeah, they find. And was I that mean, just after years of relentless? Yeah, I mean, please, like they finally one. kind of relented, and I, I like when it turned up in on in my house. I my mind was blown that they could have possibly relented and, and bought this thing because they'd been so fundamentally opposed to it before that. Do you know why? Like, was there any reason they 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 shifted? No, I don't know. Probably my dad found it cheap on a market or something. He likes buying stuff cheap. <laughs> I don't know. That must have been amazing though. Like, because if you know, if you if you have. You know, you've been aware of games for so long, you'd be really into them, and then suddenly, all your dreams come true one morning. You've got you've got a Mega Drive. Like, it, was that 
it was as exciting as it sounds. It was like Judy Garland stepping into you know the world of Technicolor. Like all of a sudden, like there was this, this <laughs> bright you know profusion of of colors on on my TV screen. It was insane. I mean, again, like I remember like my dad getting back when I was on study leave for my A levels, and I remember him coming into the room and being like, you know, you should you should relax, boy. You know, make sure you're resting enough. You know, to study. And I was. Look at him like, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, I'm sitting in front of the like the console and I've been here since seven this morning. Like I've been playing for six hours solid. Like I think I'm getting enough relaxation time. It's yeah. <laughs> it was quite a dramatic shift from in my life, I have to say. What was uh, what were the games that you got that that kind of stick out? I mean obviously Sonic I got Sonic, which I was, you know, never a really big fan of, uh, ironically. But um like I say, like Poyo Poyo stood out for me. We played a lot of, like at my friend's house, they had like SNESs. So we played a lot of Mario Kart and Street Fighter. Um, Poyo Poyo, that was like the, the mean bean machine on Mega Drive. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, the game? That's right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, we, you know, devoted a whole summer to, to that. That was brilliant. But I remember like the, the game that I really loved was a game called Mutant League Football. And I noticed it's, there's, I think there's a Kickstarter there. They may be making a remake of it. But it was basically Madden with you know monsters and mutants so it's kind of like blood bowl at the time but it was just fantastic like some of the animations were great as well like when you kind of you know destroyed players like you know skeletons would kind of explode or you know trolls might kind of burst into a pool of blood it was quite a quite cool game and so what about your kind of your sort of group of friends that you play board games with was this just i've got a console and that's it and you're just you're in the house alone for the rest of the year i guess like i i I don't think the two are connected but i think i probably drifted away from that group of friends and into another one around the time that i got into console gaming so yeah after that point like i I guess i played fewer board games although i probably still collected them i don't really know i mean i guess when i got into magic the gathering i started collecting a lot of cards um but yeah like there were i guess there were two kind of distinct groups so yeah and so but like when you um you were saying when you were younger you would like get programming books and read those and stuff so did you ever pursue that in in any way like did you get a computer at all not remotely i think i had an amstrad or something at one point but i never remotely pursued programming although the games were always just like a a joyful thing to play as opposed to things you'd analyze or like try and pull apart or anything yeah, although having said that, I mean, so, well, just as an aside, like, I, you know, the books I was that I used to collect were these Usborne, you know, books about how to program, which I think they have just made available freely online to coincide with some sort of like kind of uh, relaunch of that's like a similar kind of series, which um, so I'd recommend people check them out because they're, they're, it's really interesting to read them now, you know, like the assumptions that they made about what constitutes a game and stuff. Excuse me, but in terms of like analyzing games and stuff, like the, I used to try, I used to like ma- try and make my own role playing games or war game rules in, you know, kind of school, old school exercise books, and never really with a, a very deep understanding of how those games worked. You know, I would just try and copy some mechanics from some other RPG. You know, I think nowadays, like if you're talking about making games, you probably have to quite have quite a, a kind of mathematical background, you know. You have to under, understand, I guess, probabilities quite deeply, but I never did. I just used to, yeah, try and copy a few mechanics and rustle them up and try and come up with a new game, which never really worked. Did you, like, um, play them with anyone? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, like, how did your exams go then after this, you know, you're sitting playing Mega Drive up until, you know, you have to do the exams? Did you do all right? Surprisingly well, yeah. That, like, I, I guess I must have just been super relaxed by the time the exams came around. <laughs> yeah. So was that, like, was that you on the the path then would you did you get like a bunch of other consoles or was the n64 the next one yeah i guess like so i, I think yeah it must have been after the, the mega drive it must have been the n64 but yeah that was the kind of gateway drug and i mean it it kind of coincided with uh, you know getting good exam results meant that my parents kind of finally got off my back and also i guess by that point i was theoretically an adult so you know i could afford my own stuff although again i remember like when i was working at edge uh you know we used to get paid peanuts and so i remember my mum and dad gave me uh gave me a like some cash to get a bed to sleep in and instead i spent it on an import gamecube but yeah like so so by the time that came around by the time i was on edge like i had yeah like everything basically and in fact i sold my collection recently because it was all at my mum and dad's house so a guy from uh, from the internet came around in his car and picked it all up there was about a car's worth of stuff and yeah, like just, you know, Dreamcasts, Xboxes, PlayStation 1s, PlayStation 2s, uh, you know, like a ton of really esoteric controllers, you know, like arcade sticks, fishing rods and stuff like that. So it was quite That's um, a little bit heartbreaking, Dave. It was totally heartbreaking. But, you know, sadly, like, you know, even if I wanted to, I, I just wouldn't have the time to play those games. And also, you know, a lot of them just aren't compatible with the power supplies over here in, in Japan. So, um yeah. You have to just start buying them again then, clearly. Yeah, like I have with, with board games. In fact, I bought Blood Bowl the other day, you know, the, the Games Workshop board game. I do, I do. And it is literally the exact game that I still have up in my mum and dad's loft, which I haven't <laughs> yet sold my collection of, of board games. But um, yeah, so I'm like maybe in another 10 years, I'll, I'll end up buying a load of, uh, you know, like Game Boy games and stuff. So like... Once you've done your exams, you go into A levels and you go into university and stuff. What, what, like clearly you had this love of video games, but did it translate to any aspirations? Like, were you, you, you said you weren't really focused on the programming side, but were you thinking, oh, this is, I could be involved in this somehow? Well, well like I said, like, I, I remember reading Edge at the time and I remember like lying in bed with a girlfriend at the time and I was just like, you know, like this, this magazine is just so great. Like, you know, like, wow. And she, <laughs> and she was like, why don't you go and write for them after you graduate? And I was like, you can't just go and write for a magazine. Like, that doesn't happen. And, um, you know, like a couple of years later, I was actually just writing for them. So it was kind of interesting. Um, and Did you tell that, that story in your interview? Uh, I was in bed with a woman. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I did. My, my interview went awfully, actually. I, I got um, got off at the wrong stop and had to get a taxi and then had to phone up the editor at the time, it was Tony Mott. And I was like, oh, hi, Toby. Um, I'm going to be late. And then I had to run. <laughs> there was a traffic jam, so I had to run. Um, so by the time I got to where the interview was taking place, I was dripping in sweat and uh, a little bit beflummoxed. But um, obviously it worked out okay in the end. Um, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to that. So <laughs> going to uh, university, like, did you... I don't know, because in university, you have this opportunity to kind of reinvent yourself and, you know, represent yourself to, to the world. So did you go, like, with video games in stock and you're like, right, this is, I don't find people like me. Or was it just not that conscious? I don't know. Like, I've always been a little bit of a social chameleon, I guess. Like, I've always kind of hung out with, like, quite geeky crowds and non-geeky crowds. But, like, I would say, like, 
I've kind of bridged those two as well. Like when I was at university, like I used to hang out with people who weren't into games and I guess via me, they ended up getting into games and we used to, you know, pile into people's rooms and play Mortal Kombat, even though it was crap and stuff. But, um, like I, like I discovered magic when I was at university and, and that was really interesting to me. Like, uh, uh, but again, like the crowd who were into magic were a wholly kind of different social grouping from, the people I would usually hang out with. So it's like, it's not a kind of the kind of game that you can introduce to people who, you know, might, I guess like, you know, might, might not be into that kind of, uh, dungeons and dragons type culture or whatever. If you try and pitch that game as a, as an exquisite masterpiece of game design, it's a little bit of a hard sell, but obviously like with consoles, it's a lot easier to, uh, like that's a, a bit of a better Trojan horse, isn't it? Like, you know, like a game like Mortal Kombat has loads of blood and, guts in it so people are kind of more willing to uh to take a punt on that i guess <laughs> but like i mean you went you went to it was it cambridge or oxford, oxford cambridge, right? yeah oxford oh no i got the wrong one <sighs> i apologize for that offense you. but like you know like I've, I've known a few people who've gone and, and the the kind of in comparison to most universities the, the the workloads and the the time for personal study i suppose is just is is incredibly intense like a lot more so than a regular university so did you i don't know like i not i guess i'm thinking like how were games perceived when you went there like were you kind of out and out i play games let's all play games or was it a bit like oh this is this isn't that cool i'll just i'll see what other people are into first and if they're into it then maybe we can chat about video games like when i went to university it was just on the cut kind of uh transition into the playstation era so i guess it was just you know on just about to transition from, you know, being a slightly adolescent pastime to maybe a slightly kind of older, cooler kind of thing. I mean, I remember like when the PlayStation came out, like everybody was into it. So it was fine and acceptable to be into games at that point. I think maybe before that, like definitely like there would be some people who might be a bit like, oh, you know, you play games, you're a bit weird or whatever. But I think like, um, like I don't know. Like everybody's a bit more open-minded at university. I think people tend to um, absolutely. So like I, I never really experienced any kind of weirdness about it. Like I say, like I think um, by the time I came out of university, everybody I knew was into games simply because it was that moment, you know, at which games exploded. You know, like when I joined Edge, I think, um, you know, shortly after university, I think at that time, like the official PlayStation magazine was, you know basically one of you know the leading men's magazines it was you know selling half a million issues uh, you know every issue i think like which was on a par with magazines like fhm and loaded at the time which were you know huge kind of cultural phenomenon so you know games really was like a big cultural phenomenon at that time i mean that was definitely kind of a, a real sort of boom period for just crazy inventive kind of odd interesting games the kind of late 90s early 2000s there was a real kind of broadening of the potential of games i think with like off the back of kind of the playstation you know changing the audience a little bit and then you just started getting more and more interesting weird stuff like like bangayo is a classic example which which is weird because it is like bangayo is very much just a traditional relatively traditional kind of shoot 'em up but with this kind of layer of absurdity in in terms of the stories and the characters and stuff that just made it seem so exciting and different you know yeah i mean i think like obviously around the, the time of the playstation and nintendo they were kind of working out the rules weren't they but i mean 
specifically with regard to Bang.io, like the thing that I love about it is it, it, it looks so straightforward, but like it's actually, you know, and it looks like a, a shoot 'em up, but like it's actually more of a puzzle game. Like it's a, again, it, it's that kind of deep kind of combo driven mechanic, like where you, you know, small actions taken early on can have kind of far reaching consequences. Like one of the things that I really used to enjoy about the version, certainly on the Dreamcast, was the way that you could kind of chain together like one of the mechanics was like if you shot a load of things basically like the more bullets that were were coming towards you the more powerful your bombs and the more things yeah. you destroyed the more like you would kind of power up your bombs and, and recharge your bombs so like you could chain together just by being completely insane like you know flying into these kind of bu bullet hell in fact i think it was probably slightly predated a lot of the kind of bullet hell type games but like you know the way that you could chain that combo of you know, going from one absurdly, you know, dangerous position to, to the next to try and, you know, maximize your counterattacks was really interesting to me. But then at the same time, like, you know, the next level might just be a straightforward puzzle piece where you had to work out, you know, the best way of getting around a maze. It was kind of a really interesting game. Oh, it's amazing. The the the, the one they released uh, on, was it 360? The, the most recent version they released was was amazing and and i think I've, it kind of it leaned in much more towards the the sort of puzzle element of it there were a lot of levels which were specifically like destroy x amount of things in 10 seconds <laughs> and you had to figure out the best way to get yourself into the most precarious position so then you could release just one shot that would destroy everything it was it was amazing yeah i think i think the good, there was a game boy version as well or or DS or something, which was there was a DS version, yeah. Yeah, I think I tried to give that ten out of ten for Eurogame, but they wouldn't let me. Sadly, <laughs> I think wasn't that the one where uh, maybe it was the Xbox one where they 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 intentionally kind of added in the slowdown, like it it was an integral part of the game, even though the system could run it. It was just that you had to have that element of slowdown just to make you feel like you were breaking the game because there was just so much on screen at once. That's interesting. I never heard. I never realised that actually happened but that is interesting i mean i have to say like the slowdown went, that kicks in when you are in the middle of an insane firefight was like kind of quite viscerally satisfying so uh makes sense for sure so dave how how does how does one end up with a, a history degree and then become an investment banker uh, i mean i guess like that there's if you can't work out what to do when you graduate from oxford or cambridge you just get a job in investment banking which is what i did basically <laughs> is that just like the they just hand those eight at the end so we don't have anything else to do call this number yeah i mean like honestly well i mean i actually started doing an ma in medieval history but um like during during the the because with a view to doing a phd actually um in medieval haircuts um but like i <laughs> yeah decided like kind of that maybe the you know i don't know the career opportunities associated with having specialized in medieval haircuts were not as great as perhaps the satisfaction i would have derived from studying them so i kind of gave up halfway through and literally just in my job interviews like that i mean it really was like ah so what college did you go to you know it was real kind of old boys uh you know network kind of thing in fact one of the guys who interviewed me was subsequently in uh this is like totally unrelated to games but he was subsequently in the mail on sunday complaining that even though he'd given loads of money to his old college, they didn't give a place to his son to study there. As if like, you know, like spending a load of money on, on university should 
you know, bypass the regular procedures yeah. for getting in. So, well, yeah. To be honest, that does surprise me. I feel like that's probably... I'm, I'm sure he's only that angry because a lot of his friends have also given <laughs> money and their kids got in and that's fine. Yeah, although I have to say, I mean, like, weirdly, like, Oxford's quite an egalitarian place because, you know, they tend to be quite strict on, on the academic requirements, I have to say. But uh, obviously, like, the, the big the big problem with, with Oxford is that, like, you know, the richest kids have been prepared the best for, for the entrance exam, so. Yeah. So how was investment banking? Like, I don't even understand how you can... Investment banking... Just, just do that. Yeah, it was incomprehensible to me. I mean, it really was like, you know, I was working every hour that God gave because, you know, how long is a piece of string? You know, like, you can always make money in investment banking because basically you're kind of conjuring up money out of nothing or... You know, so it, it, it was a weird job. And, um, yeah, I'm sure if I'd have stayed there, I'd have had some kind of, you know, reckoning at some point. But thankfully, I got out quite early. But, you like, I'm assuming you make loads of money doing that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the money kind of increases exponentially. But, I mean, you know, a lot of people do either kind of they're forced out or they're filtered out or they stay in it and make a ton of money. I mean, relatively speaking, yeah, like my first year bonus was more more than i got paid um at edge but uh but i mean it, it's not a huge amount now <laughs> i think about it yeah yeah so you very quickly decided right i'll go i'll go and work for edge so had you done anything like before that at that time like like written for the paper or anything like that no nothing and so like i think i just like handed in some crappy examples and you know to be perfectly honest i was always a bit crap as a journalist like my writing was was not very good but fortunately they kind of took me on and um it gave me an opportunity to to play a load of games and write about them at least that that's that i, I don't understand that like for starters you you're you're an excellent writer mm -hmm. and clearly they must have seen something in you then i'll just be like well he seems nice enough and he's he's missed his train and he's wet <laughs> so we'll just give him a job i mean i guess i guess like you know like anything like when you kind of hire people you're always looking for some sort of cultural fit and I guess like I had it at Edge like my time at Edge I, I remember really fondly like even though like the people who worked on that magazine like we all came from quite diverse set of backgrounds but like we were united by this love of games and there was a real I, Simon Byron like used to describe his time on on games magazines as as like the, the press gang and I wouldn't say it was like the press gang but like we did have a lot of larks and you know, we, we had a lot of, we caused a lot of trouble in Bath. Um, and, you know, like we all loved games. We loved talking about it. And, you know, that that era of not just Edge, but but future journalists, there's a lot of people who've gone on to, you know, really significant success, like Simon Parkin, Kieran Gillen, Keith Stewart, you know, like, and, you know, like the, some of the, the guys are still working on on Edge as well. So it's, um it was a really, I remember that kind of uh, era very fondly, I have to say. So, like, it must have been amazing, though, to, you know, go to a magazine where suddenly you have just games, just here's, here's games, go nuts. It was quite that weird. It so exciting. It was quite weird, but it was quite a lot of work as well. I mean, you know, the economics of games journalism are, are you know, even then were, were quite broken. Like, you know, the, the rates that journalists used to get paid were not very high. And so... I remember one of the issues that kind of came up while I was working on the magazine was this issue of freelancers basically reviewing the same game for multiple outlets. But one of the reasons that that, that, that used to happen was because especially like, you know, excuse me, you would get these like epic kind of RPGs that would take 70 hours to complete. 
you know, and if somebody commissions you a half page review, if you're a freelancer, then or, you know, even internally, like, you know, it's not a question maybe of money, but it's a question of time. But, you know, if you're spending 70 hours playing the game and you only to fill like half a page of space like that's, you know, a, a vast kind of investment of time that's required. So people used to, you know, review the same game for multiple outlets and it used to um it became a bit of an issue you know with publishers you know because if you got a journalist who didn't like the game or who did like the game it would have a disproportionate impact i guess you know that was at a time where you know the, the media was still kind of a gatekeeper in in a way that it's not so much anymore yeah i mean but like purely from I, I guess, like, notwithstanding the the job aspect of it, just from somebody who who loves games, like that, that must have been it, a magical kind of time, like to have all these new games coming in, because it was very much like a, a boom period in terms of creativity. I mean, it was totally nuts having a games room full of you know equipment and a, a PC that was capable of playing PC game, you know, the latest PC games. That was quite an eye opener, and you know, getting to see games like Halo before you know many people had seen it and. I mean, I remember like with Halo, I remember spotting its potential very early and um, like nobody else seemed to be very enthusiastic about it apart from from us at the time. And I think we've been, I think we were vindicated really. Like I think that that turned out to be a great game. So yeah, going to see games like that was was amazing. And also like I was, I remember like just before my era of journalism was the era of real kind of like press, crazy press junkets and, you know, crazy kind of gifts to journalists. I remember like hearing stories about PR people taking journalists to shops and just buying them TVs or, you know, crates of beer just to try and get them to write good reviews about games. And, you know, like crazy press junkets like, um, you know, the Tomb Raider trip down down the Nile and stuff. But like by the time I was there, there was still kind of the occasional press junket, you know, like especially like the Xbox launches would always be quite kind of lavish. But, you know, by the time like the end of my you know, career as a, a freelance journalist came around, you know, like I remember like one of the, one of the last press trips I went on was a trip to the Isle of Wight where we, we went, we ended up on, on some beach under a gazebo, but it was so windy that they had to bury the gazebo half in the sand. And then the next morning, um, we had to share, we had to share rooms in, in rooms that were like 10 pounds a head. And in the morning, like the, there was water leaking into the kitchen, uh, into the dining room from, from a bucket. So, you know, like the, like I really in a two or three or four or five short years that I was a games journalist that I really did uh, oversee the the decline of of the media. <laughs> Sorry. What what are some of the the sort of gaming highlights of that of that sort of time? You mean in terms of the game the games themselves? Yeah, the games that you played that you're like, oh holy shit! Like I've made the right move here. This is the future. This is amazing. Like I say, Halo Halo was was mind blowing. I remember seeing that. Uh, uh, an Xbox demo and being totally blown away by it. I, I really love that game. Um, like the GameCube was a magnificent era. You know, we used to play a lot of uh, Monkey Ball. We used to play a lot of uh, Samba de Amigo on the Dreamcast. You know, like we used to get people would pile around our house. I used to live with Mark Wallbank, um, the who used to write with who used to write for Edge uh, at the same time as I did. And people used to pile around our house and there was no furniture in the house, just games, basically, like Samba de Amigo. You'd spent your money on an import GameCube. Yeah, exactly. You? Yeah, Dreamcast, GameCube. I mean, that, that Dreamcast and GameCube era was, I loved that. Like, the PlayStation 2 was, was a bit underwhelming, but, like, you know, oddly given that sense of 
having been underwhelmed, it also had some some magnificent games. I mean, Fantavision was great. The first Street, the launch Street Fighter game was was magnificent as well. We played a lot of that. So yeah, the launch Street Fighter game. Yeah, when PlayStation Two came out, there was a Street Fighter EX game came out with it, and it was just a you know kind of like. Um, it's like a kind of faux 3D. Yeah, it was 3D graphics, but basically played in in two dimensions. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say anything nice about that game. I'm, I'm glad to, I've, I've never played it, but and also like Dead or Alive came out at that time as well, and I think like Dead or Alive was not fondly viewed by beat 'em up aficionados, but I used to really enjoy it. I thought it was a really like it was very interesting in the way that like a lot of the the, the players had kind of move sets that were dependent on kind of counter-attacks you know that for me was yeah no i loved dead or alive yeah it was a great game right oh it was brilliant because it it was it it was just as kind of reaction based as a lot of the other games but i don't know it seemed to be maybe i'm misremembering this but to me it felt like a, a slower pace you could be a bit more deliberate with the kind of choices that you made because they all had like hard counters to each other which would lead into other combos yeah but you could end up kind of countering back and forth for ages which was always really exciting yeah i yeah i think that's uh, i think that's a very good description and then of course it led into the uh beach volleyball game which I, you know i was a i have to say like i was a huge fan of it like i remember at that time we um we put um a girl's pants on the front of the magazine like before there were social justice warriors, uh, we were social justice warriors. Although, like that kind of game was really conflicting because obviously, like the you know, the kind of the titillatory theme was was clearly quite troubling. But the the underlying game and and really like I don't know the kind of sense of I, I don't know like affection that you might have for the characters was was a really interesting uh, gameplay. Um, development at the time I thought oh it's 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 an amazing game like I really stand by Dead or Alive Extreme Beach Volleyball as ridiculous as that sounds like <laughs> I and I've, I've had discussions about this with, with other people in the past about how you get so attached to the characters and the their fr- it's a it's a really good friendship simulator yeah right which is is an extremely rare thing in, in video games yeah. uh, even though you know it is presented as like a, a titillation game essentially there are some really fun clever and unique sort of gameplay ideas within it that, that are just that are amazing totally and in fact like i guess that friendship mechanic was reminding me of a couple of games that i played while i was a journalist which are fire emblem and uh valkyria chronicles both of which had that kind of friendship dynamic um which i loved and actually obviously nintendo have just brought out the new fire emblem which treads all over my fond memories of the fire emblem series in so many different ways oh um, really I, I don't know if you know but i uh when i was blown up on the tube my the game that was in my gba at the time was um was fire emblem so it's quite I an important game that. to me like psychologically you should, yeah, you should so, tell that um, whole story because if people aren't aware of it that's that's quite a thing to just drop into mid-conversation well, so, yeah, when I was working at Rockstar, after Edge, I went to Rockstar. And when I was working at Rockstar um, on the 7th of July, whatever year it was, various uh, people blew up various kind of trains and, and bus, a bus in London. And I was on one of the trains that got blown up uh, in the next carriage along. And at the time I was playing Fire Emblem. So when the when the bomb went off, I, you know, snapped my G- GBA shut and... Uh, and I remember, like, just before I got off the train, kind of using my BlackBerry, which was uh, then, you know, the 
the latest smartphone must have smartphone phone i remember emailing um you know work and telling them that um that you know a bomb had gone off and i might not make it into work and then by chance i bumped into a colleague actually at liverpool street station and we started walking across london hoping to get to uh to get to uh, the king's road which is where where the, the rockstar offices were at the time and yeah we didn't make it but we uh, we ended up going into a pub and and having a few beers which was yeah, which is interesting. But so, yeah, so Fire Emblem is quite an important game for me. So to see the latest iteration, which um, is, you know, as far as I can tell, is just, uh, you know, free to play kind of on steroids is, is a little bit disappointing. It seems to me that they've really uh, minimized the kind of strategic requirements, maximized the the cash <laughs> requirements and... Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a disappointment. The other thing that's bit that that was annoying was that that it comes in multiple downloads, and uh, like for that some is reason, very annoying. well, I mean, I have to say, like, I, I understand that because our, our game, the game that I'm working on at the moment, is very large, and if you have a large download, people won't download it. So, you know, uh, it's very kind of uh, typical, as, at least in Japan, to to make the initial download a small download so that you can then, you know maybe during the tutorial or something, uh, download the assets that are required to continue playing the game. But the Fire Emblem servers were, were jammed up, so I couldn't get the third download for ages, which was a little bit frustrating. I played it very briefly, um, I, 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 and I sort of deleted it. I probably won't play it again. I don't, like, I have no connection with Fire Emblem, though, so I don't... At first, I thought it was... Because, I, you know, it's the same... Uh, or the original games, at least it was uh, uh, intelligent systems. The same people who did uh, Advance Wars. Yeah, yeah, and so that's what I was hoping for. But it, because, it, but, but it's not that really. Well, like, I mean, historically, the the Fire Emblem series was more of a had more of a role playing bent than the you know the Advance Wars. Like the units in Advance Wars were essentially disposable. Yeah, but in Fire Emblem, like the key defining feature of the series has been that you know once characters die, that that's it, they're gone. And so for that reason, you know, you would, again, form emotional attachments to these these characters. And while you play the game, like, you know, if you pair up certain individuals, you know, their their friendship deepens and they end up kind of giving each other kind of bonuses in battle. So it was a real kind of interesting, it added an interesting kind of tactical slant, you know, like not only did you have to solve what were also like, you know, some of them, the, the, the missions were fiendishly challenging. But, you, you know, you also had to try and, you know, find the wherewithal to actually kind of, you know, develop your squad and, and deepen their relationships as well. So it was a really kind of deep and fascinating game and, and very challenging. But now, you know, they just seem to be throwing characters at you and they don't permanently die. So it feels like <clears throat> that emotional attachment to the game is is no longer there for me. Yeah. And we should just say that you were OK from the, the bomb. I mean, I was, you know. Yes. Physically, at least, you know, I'm sure it was yeah. a horrifically traumatic event, but you were okay. Yeah, I had a lot of soot up my nose. That was the worst of it, I guess. That's brutal. Um, yeah. So, uh, is this a nice? Yeah, I, I'm gonna. This is a place where I'm gonna cut off and do some uh, some essentially quick fire questions. Although someone tweeted at me this week saying they're not really quick fire questions, are they? But I do say relatively because they're clearly not. Um, <laughs> So Dave, uh, if you are if you are prone to such things, what what was your worst rage quit? Worst rage quit. That's really interesting, actually. Um, 
I this is definitely not going to be quick fire because I literally can't think of having ever. I mean, I I know that I must have rage quit loads of times, but I simply can't remember what what, what it would have been. You seem like a relatively laid back person. I can't imagine you'd rage quit that much. I get very angry at bad games. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I can't remember the specific game. I mean, like the the worst example I can think of, which is totally mild in comparison to some of the rage quits where I've like flung controllers across the room, was um, like one of the Abe's Odyssey games on the Xbox at a demo event. Like it had a weird mechanic where um, you had to kind of throw the little guy up onto a ledge. Yeah. But unless you're positioned in exactly the right spot, you, you might not be able to lob him onto the ledge. And so for me, it was a real like fault in terms of the game design, because, you know, if you happen to be in the wrong place, but thought you were in the right place and the little guy didn't go up on the ledge, then you might be inclined to believe that, you know, lobbing him up on the ledge was not the correct solution to the puzzle. So it was a weird like mismatch of um, mechanics, like the puzzle mechanic and the action mechanic didn't really gel together. So I threw the controller down in disgust and moved to the next station. <laughs> That's quite impressive. Like at a demo, demo part as well. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't one of those ones. I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, kind of let go of it and it kind of wobbled in its holder, I guess. Okay. Because <laughs> I was going to say it probably was going to be in some sort of holder. You'd really have to yeah. wrench it from that first, then throw it on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you uh, if you had to play a, a game with the devil for your own mortal soul, uh, what game are you best at? Oh, another very challenging question. Um, I guess I was pretty good at Bang.io. Um, yeah, I mean, Mutant League Football, I was, I was a master at that game, but that was back in the days where you really had no way of testing yourself uh, against other people. Do you get competitive? Are you a competitive uh, video game player? I actually get too competitive. I, I don't like, my, I, which is genetic. I, my dad made um, my nieces cry over a game of Trivial Pursuit once because he was getting so competitive. And I, I have that instinct as well. But I don't like being competitive. So even now on Shadowverse, like it's a game with a multiplayer game where you are basically, you know, the more games you win, the, the higher rank you acquire. Yeah. Like it's got to the point now where, especially like between on the cusp of ranks, like I get kind of palpitations when I start the games and especially like, you know, when you're down to your last few health and you're just waiting for that big combo to come in, it's quite tense. So, um, yeah, I don't like being competitive, but I'm, unfortunately I am. I think that's like, I, 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 anyone who plays games and isn't competitive, I think is, is hiding something <laughs> because that, that's the, it's not the, the main joy of it, but it's one of the big ones. And especially any kind of multiplayer game where you're not playing to win, and what's the point in playing? You don't have to be a, yeah, like, a I, dick about it, but it'd be, it's you know it, to have that sense of I really want to win, and if, as long as everyone feels that, that, that's what makes the game good. I think there is some research to show though that not everybody feels that way. Well, I think I don't. I don't trust that research. Fake, <laughs> fake, fake news, I mean, alternative I, facts. I have to say, like, I prefer cooperative games to to competitive games in general. I mean, again, like one of the what like one of the kind of paradigm was it paradigm shift? I don't know. But one of the many kind of innovations that Halo had was its mul cooperative multiplayer. 
Um, I don't know if it was the first cooperative multiplayer, but it was the first easily accessible cooperative multiplayer. And it was, uh, it was, yeah, brilliant, <laughs> basically. Games, you know, games are very expressive, offer all these various types of uh, emotional engagement, but one of the rarest things is is laughter. So, Dave, what games have really made you laugh? Bang.io makes me laugh, actually. Like, just some of the crazy, weird, quirky uh, dialogue boxes that would be kind of meta-referential and stuff. Like, they'd make comments about it being a 2D game and stuff. That made me laugh. Um, other games that made me laugh, it's not... Uh, I mean, I guess, like... A lot of get multiplayer games have made me laugh, just the pure joy of either yeah. cooperating or, or competing. You know, like Dr. Mean Bean Machine Game used to make us all laugh quite a lot. But um, Mario Kart, obviously. Uh, yeah, I guess those are the, the obvious humorous games that, that make me laugh. What, what games make you laugh? Well, I mean, this has come up on the show a lot, and it is kind of cooperative stuff. There's always room for like laughing at people. But see... I, 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 people tell me stories and stuff like on the show, and it does really make me laugh. But uh, when I, as I've just revealed to you a moment ago, I'm very competitive with games. So <laughs> in the moment, I can't enjoy anything if I'm playing a competitive game and I'm losing. I'm uh. getting furious, but not. I don't think never in a bad way. As much as people are sometimes quite shocked by it, I'm not. I'm not actually really angry about anything. But I do. I do like to win. Um, it is I, stuff like Bang, like Bangayo definitely was one of the first games where I would laugh at the absurdity. I remember like going through the the instruction manual and it had all of the names of all the characters and there was like the the wedding stealer, which is a guy who just turned up and would steal your wedding from under your nose and stuff. That was amazing, like just the, the absurd notions. Yeah, maybe like it's just come to me actually. Maybe the funny that the thing that made me laugh the most and I like it was probably a lot to do with the the context, but. On um, GoldenEye, we used to play a lot of multiplayer GoldenEye. And I just remember, like, somebody, it might have been me, I can't remember, like, had the golden gun, you know, like, the super powerful weapon in this one-on-one deathmatch. And the other guy, like, hadn't got a weapon yet, but, like, they'd basically kind of, you know, come together. And, you know, the only thing that this, this, you know, the owner of the golden gun had to do was just shoot the other guy. And the other guy was just running around karate chopping him. And eventually karate chopped the golden guy gun to death. And for some reason, that left us all rolling on the floor in hysterics. It was just one of those moments of complete absurdity. But yeah, maybe you had to be there. No, I, I, th- I think a lot of that stuff is perfectly valid. But I mean, it is just tricky. Like a lot of games like, you know, the classic like Monkey Island and Portal and stuff, they, they make me smile and stuff. But rarely do I properly belly laugh. Um, I, I actually, mean, I recently played Frog Fractions 2. And that really made me laugh. But again, for very similar reasons to Bangayo, there is just such absurd non sequiturs at certain points. You're like, I can't believe this This is a thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've I've laughed more at writing and stuff about games. I mean, we used to read a lot of Old Man Murray on Edge, and they used to be very caustically funny about um, some very crap games. Uh, but yeah, that's... The games themselves, I guess, you know, don't... Can't think of too many humorous ones, I have to say. Well, let's move on then. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so what happens, you know, how did you make the jump from Edge to Rockstar? What were you doing at Rockstar? So at Rockstar, um, I think like the, the Edge era kind of came to a bit like, for me, ended with a bit of a whimper. Like there was a bit of, um, 
like for example at that time we had uh, a forum and our publisher like kind of shut it down in a in a show of authority even though you know that was again like on that cusp between you know print media and you know the the internet yeah and we had like a very early very thriving community of fans and they closed it down just to kind of prove a point so like the edge i don't remember that at all that's i don't know what how i missed that because i was i was an avid user of the the edge forum maybe it was just never made public but we um like basically it went down for maintenance and never came back up and uh yeah that was as it turns out by by design i think <laughs> that's a shame um, though because like the edge forum is you know it's how how i know you it's how i know a few of the people i've had on the show and it's it was such a, a pivotal point of, of my life certainly in terms of like you know I, I wouldn't be living in scotland if it wasn't for people i'd met on the edge forum um and then it just kind of died and now it was it was it, it could have been so much better i think like it had so much potential and like various remnants of the Edge forum still exist in various other forums that are still doing quite well, but uh, it seems a shame. It, it is a shame. I mean, but you're right. Like that a lot of people who were on the Edge forums did go on to work in the industry in one one way or another. Um, so yeah, it was a great shame that it got shut down. And so I think it was uh, like kind of disappointment with things like that. That um, you know, other kind of very commercial decisions. I mean, when I joined Edge, it was. Uh, I guess like very well protected by its publisher at the time. Like it was perceived to be like kind of, you know, a bit of a jewel in the crown and, and a kind of, you know, calling card for the rest of the, the future, mag- future publishing's kind of video game portfolio. But like while I was there, it kind of got ransacked and tried to, I think they tried to turn it into a kind of commercial, uh, commercially more successful uh, magazine, which wasn't really the right direction to take it, I don't think. But um, for those reasons, I, I ended up going to to Rockstar, and um, like, yeah, I, I was kind of brought on board to to kind of do business developmenty stuff, like to not just for Rockstar, but for for Take Two, which at the time was rationalising like a lot of different smaller kind of uh, labels and subsidiaries into three big kind of brands. Um, but partway during that process, I got kind of got pulled into Rockstar. So I was kind of looking for, you know, other developers who might want to release games and new technologies and stuff. And I also kind of worked on a lot of the games coming through internally, just on a kind of admin side and also uh, like, um, you know, providing feedback and uh, about the designs and stuff. Was it fun? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like uh, the thing that um, that impressed me most about my time at Rockstar was that the guys who who set that company up really did do it for love, not money. Like they were, you know, which which I guess you know, like um, like anything, like that. Uh, you know, there's a there's that quote about every family being dysfunctional in its own way, and I think you know, Rockstar has its own dysfunctions, but obviously out of that comes, uh, you know you know commercially and culturally very successful art so it was really interesting to work on those titles and and i really enjoyed the company of all the people there like um you know sam hauser was was always really uh super smashing to me and um obviously i met my wife there um but yeah like so it was, it was really interesting we got to work on on some very interesting games but it was it was kind of tough as well like those games those guys took it very seriously you know like they worked very hard on those games to 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 get them out and stuff so and that was like relatively 
early on. I mean, I know they they had done the sort of GTA. They kind of established themselves as Rockstar by that point, but it wasn't. It was before GTA Four, right? It was uh, around the time of the hot coffee incident, actually, because oh, um, interesting. So, like, shortly after I got blown up on the tube, we uh, <laughs> we decided to go on a beer beer not afraid uh, pub crawl to <laughs> defy the terrorists. And uh, the night before that pub crawl. I had to come in and play test, um, you know, the, the revised version of um, San Andreas all night. So I had a couple of hours sleep and then wandered off to where I was meeting everybody and tried to find a gym or somewhere that I could take a shower. And in the end, had to kind of wash myself in the sink of a pub that happened to be open at that night in the morning. And then from there, proceeded to, to drink my way um, to defy the terrorists. Drink yourself into liberty. Exactly, yeah. That's a wonderful gesture. Yeah. What did you have to play? Like, what was the, there just was the bit like, they'd edited around, I guess? I mean, basically, at that time, like, because they had to fix hot coffee so quickly, like, literally every part of the organization was kind of brought on just to, to play through it as often as possible to make sure that it wasn't broken. So we had to kind of play and replay the same mission, which is actually really difficult as well. Can't, like, maybe there was a helicopter pad or something, and there was about, like, 15 guys shooting at you. And so you had to play through it and complete it like umpteen different times, which, you know, having played, doing it again and again is, is quite tough. I mean, Rockstar had, um, I mean, obviously Rockstar games, I guess, were a reasonably well known for being quite buggy. And but, you know, obviously that's a byproduct of the, the massive complexity. And they had uh, like a testing department up in up in Lincoln. And those guys were, were animals like they just used to play those games inside and out. So, um yeah, they had a very impressive kind of testing outfit uh, up in Lincoln at Rockstar, which obviously, you know, like, it's funny, like being on, having been on both sides of the, the equation, you know, as a journalist and, and player, but also like having made games, it's interesting the way that, that players of games assume that the way that decisions are taken, you know, they assume that people might have like, for example, in the case of Rockstar, a lot of the time, like it was assumed that, that they those guys were manufacturing kind of uh you know media outrages but actually like you know the it was really the opposite like they really like didn't want uh any of that kind of outrage they just wanted to quietly get on with with what they were doing um and in you know again likewise a lot of people think you know that people that developers that games happen to have bugs because they're not being tested well but you know like the rockstar games were tested to within an inch of their life like the, the problem was like fixing all those bugs in, in a game of such complexity, you know, to, to hit very demanding kind of release schedules was, was a different kettle of fish altogether. Yeah, no, it's insane. It's actually it's quite interesting. I was thinking about Hot Coffee yesterday because I've been playing um, Yakuza 0, uh, which yeah. is it's, it's excellent. It's really bizarrely paced, but it is, it's very good <laughs> once you get into a groove of it. But there's I think it's the first time... A Yakuza game has kind of come out uh, in the West, like completely unedited. Right. Because, like, I think in Yakuza Three was the last one that I played. There was like they they cut out all the hostess bars and stuff, and they, there was like right. big chunks of the game missing because they were like, oh, I don't know, this might be a bit dodgy culturally. Um, but this one, it just is nothing. And some of the the side missions in there are like genuinely shocking. And <laughs> like imagining, like for instance, there was one I played, and you're having to interrogate schoolgirls because uh, they're part of a ring that are selling used panties and you need to find the ringleader. 
Like, imagine if something like that was in a Rockstar game. The the, the outrage <laughs> would be unbelievable. But it's fine. Yeah. It's just this little niche Japanese open world game, so it's fine. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't really know what I can add to that, I have to say. <laughs> no, it was just it was something that was on my mind. Just maybe, I maybe what I would say is, is that used panties are not really a big thing in Japan, just to clarify that for your listeners. No, I'm, I'm sure they're not, but they're clearly <laughs> enough of a thing that they can... And to be fair as well, this is set in the 80s, so, you know, yeah. maybe oh, they, back they in were... the 80s. Because <laughs> yeah. that's, that's certainly one of the first, like, four things I learned about Japan. <laughs> yeah. So how, how, how about Japan then, Dave? How, how has that been? Well, I mean, I like it. I like it here. My, um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's, uh, people have a lot of misconceptions about Japan. Even a lot of expats have a lot of misconceptions, even while they live here, because I think, you know, the language is challenging to get to grips with. And so it's very easy to, to, uh, get the wrong end of the stick sometimes, I think. So, um, but yeah, like it's challenging as well. Like, I mean, for example, like, um, certainly that the free to play boom over here spawned, like kind of an arms race uh, or you know maybe a boobs race like you know every game has quite racy kind of pictures and in fact to go back to the hearthstone conversation when when i was at gree we we had a conversation with them and i remember my boss like they were talking to us about maybe releasing the game in japan and my boss looked at the artwork for the cards and basically was like yeah i don't know how to say this i think your cards need to be uh, your designs need to be a bit more pornographic and <laughs> that was you know like a like poor translation on his part more than more than anything but you know it did conceal quite a well you know quite a fundamental truth which is that a lot of games certainly in the free-to-play space are competing for attention quite aggressively so you know women's boobs are quite prominent over here in a way that they you know is certainly not acceptable in the west and so that presents challenges when you're marketing you know japanese games in, in the west but like um you know that there's not been the same you know certainly in the west my perception being in Japan is that there's been, you know, a big movement away from those kind of, uh, you know, objectification tropes and yeah. so on. But um, in Japan, there's there's not really a similar kind of uh, outcry. In fact, most of the companies that I've worked have been, you know, at least uh, probably actually predominantly staffed by by women. And all of those companies have, you know, produced quite a lot of content that that would make a lot of Western gamers kind of. Uh, do a double take i think it's interesting that one of the things about uh, sort of the japanese video game scene of the last sort of 10 years that i find really surprising is that there hasn't been the same kind of indie boom that you've seen everywhere else like the, the there doesn't seem to be the, the you know you look at like since sort of xbox live arcade i guess and the the classic kind of um braids and limbo and stuff like that you know they kind of exploded this new kind of triple a indie game i guess um but and, and you see it kind of all over the world i mean most of the the people that i've spoken to on the show have like made games that sort of fit into that sort of bracket but you don't really seem to get that in japan for whatever reason that there is a little bit of a burgeoning indie scene i think maybe like a lot of those games don't make it over to the west i think one thing that i think i'm i think this is this is correct but like i know that like having spoken to kind of colleagues at some of the companies that I've worked at, there's kind of maybe quite a lot of pressure from parents on people to get a proper job. Like even at Gree, which at the time was, you know, like, uh, 
you know, one of the most widely advertised brands on TV. I mean, you couldn't turn on a TV for more than about 10 minutes without seeing an advert for Gree when I when I worked there. Even then, like some of the people who worked there told me that, you know, their parents didn't like them moving from, you know, an established company to, to work for this, what they considered to be a startup. And um, so I think like, you know, whereas in the West, it might be kind of viable to you know, maybe take some time off and, and work on, off your own back. Like in Japan, it's slightly different um, employment situation. Certainly like, you know, there's there's not as much job hopping or, or you know, sabbaticals or whatever over here. It's a shame. I feel like there's probably all sorts of like amazing potential kind of tiny games made by little small teams of Japanese creators that just don't ever see the light of day. Like I'm sure there's loads of really amazing things done in-house at larger studios that kind of never really emerge into the into the light yeah maybe but i mean like you know as with everything in japan like everything has kind of merits and and demerits you know and i think um it's easy to like i tend to to view both sides now so you know like you're probably right like there, there might be some amazing games that are missed out on but there's still quite a lot of kind of i mean also like you know a lot of the smartphone games that get released in Japan just don't make it outside of Japan. So maybe you're not seeing that kind of, you know, some of the quirkier stuff that, that goes on as well. I mean, certainly like there was that, I can't remember the name, but there was that cat game that everybody went a little bit wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there are those kind of games that, that come out, um, but maybe they're, they're less visible, I guess. I mean, I think, you know, with ironically, like smartphones in a way has made, you know, Japanese games slightly more insular, like, because in the old days, you used to have publishers who would take care of releasing games for you. But now, basically, developers have to kind of do it all themselves. So, you know, those indie guys just might not have the resources or in terms of, you know, the the understanding of foreign markets to kind of release those games outside of Japan. Is there anything like that, that we haven't talked about that you sort of had in your mind to, to chat about or mention? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, yeah, like, I hope um, it was an interesting chat for you. Sorry for, like, kind of going on uh, a lot about a lot of stuff. But um, that's the whole point. Yeah. Never well, apologize. That's, that's... Never apologize. Yeah, it was a lovely chat. It was lovely to speak to you. And, um, yeah, can't. I hope you uh, get over here again soon so that we can go back to the um, Resident Evil Cafe. Oh, that was that was rubbish. I mean, it was yeah. it was like <laughs> totally. a nice thing. It was a nice sort of, you know, I went to Japan, I went to uh, the Capcom, Capcom Cafe, um, but it was awful. Like, the food was awful. Um, and there was, like, I was quite disappointed that one, one of the things, that's kind of why I was asking about the Japanese thing, because we went to that cafe and there was an advert for some Capcom game, and it was like a Capcom uh, Muso game, like a Dynasty Warriors style game, which looked amazing, and it's just it's never come out over here. And I know that, that I would love that. Yeah, it's called like Sakura or something like that. Not Sakura. I have to say I don't remember that. But I mean, I, have to, I was talking to um, Keith Stewart last time I was in the UK, actually. And he was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, let's talk about that feature idea you mentioned the last time, which I had totally forgotten about. But there is like a whole, like... Sengoku Basara is the name of it. Sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that, that those games did come out in uh, in the West. Is that right? You should you should check that out. I'm sure they sort sure at least some of those games came out in the West. But, okay, yeah. sorry, I interrupted. But, but there is a whole like kind of you know ecosystem of games like say especially now on smartphones. But even when I arrived in Japan, 
you'd go into Yodobashi Kamara, you know, the kind of main electronics store, and there would just be shelves and shelves of these, like, you know, visual or, you know, kind of interactive novels or, you know, like kind of romance games. And there's whole kind of genres that don't make it over to the West. I mean, again, like the last company that I worked at, its main kind of output was was romance games for women where, you know, they were almost like kind of re, uh, choose your own adventure where you basically had to try and get these kind of effeminate looking guys with big hair to, uh, to, to like you enough to date you or whatever it is by choosing the right kind of text choices. It was, you know, there's, there's whole, whole swathes of games that, that don't make it to the West. So, um, that sounds, yeah. I, I'd be into that. Like, I think I quite enjoy that game. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, like there was a girl band over here called uh, AKB48. I still think they're still going, but I have an AKB48 calendar, Dave. Right. Oh wow. Okay. Well, so when I came over here, I managed to persuade my wife to get me uh, a PSP AKB48 game, uh, ostensibly to learn Japanese, but really just because I was kind of fascinated by what kind of game it would be, and it, it was one of those dating games. And I remember, you know, like these girls w- would you know if all went well at the end of the date they'd invite you into their house so that you could taste their takoyaki it was it's kind of interesting <laughs> I, I i i became like i'd never heard of akb48 until uh we went to japan and right. I, I just became obsessed uh during the sort of the 10 or 11 days i was there and a friend of mine uh bought me a calendar to take home with me i just i, I love the the kind of the rules of the band like they have all these yeah. sort of various tiers it's like a, a constant year-long x factor basically wherever yeah. you, you vote on your favorites through the records you buy and you can but so, oh it's amazing but you but you know like that's that's kind of like an engineered thing so like in order to vote you have to buy the record so some fans would buy you know like hundreds of records to vote for their favorite member right and that would obviously drive the the music up in in the charts and stuff it's yeah oh yeah no it, it, it is is manipulative you know and and yeah. the fact that i think one of them was caught with a boyfriend and she had to be she had to shave her head and come on yeah. tv and cry and tell, tell, tell everyone how ashamed she was like all oh, that's gross but just it's mental yeah the just the, the the structure of it the the idea that this this band as an army basically with various ranks yeah. is just mind-blowing to me i loved it and again now though there's there's a whole ecosystem of those girl bands now there's like uh you know, all with kind of similar sounding names and different, you know, various multitudinous numbers of members. It's it's interesting. They should do a, a, like a Total War series, but just with, <laughs> with girl bands. That'd be amazing. Or, or, or like a Muso series. Yeah, yes. that'd be interesting. That'd be so good. Yeah. And like incorporate like DDR or something into it or SingStar. That'd be, that'd, let me, that'd be good. Let me pitch that at work tomorrow. I think we make a we make a kind of idle game for smartphones. So let let me pitch that internally. Oh, I look forward to that. Well, see, that's <laughs> that's a that's a much better ending. Eh? That's a proper yeah. helpful. We're gonna we're gonna make some whole new genre of game. That's exciting. <laughs>